So Revelation 11 from verse 1. I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers, but exclude the altar court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty-two months, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, covered in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets had tormented them, tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the Lord, the God of heaven. Um, Phil's brief uh, to me for this last session was uh, that he wanted something uh, short and encouraging to end on. Um, so obviously I thought it's a passage in Revelation where two evangelists are slaughtered and their, bu- their deaths are publicly celebrated. And which ends with 7,000 people being killed in an earthquake uh, was the obvious place to go. Um, why on earth are we finishing with, uh, with this passage? Um, well, actually, I-, I think it's a passage which is uh, far more encouraging for us than it might appear at first. Um, in my mind... Uh, I think this is one of the clearest mandates that we find uh, in the Bible for every Christian to see themselves as a missionary wherever they are. Uh, We're often uh, intimidated by Revelation, aren't we? Because uh, it contains lots of quite strange, um, hard to interpret imagery. Um, And it it often sounds like fantasy to us, uh, which is ironic because actually um, Revelation tells us far more about the true nature of reality than what we see with our eyes does. It's a book which helps us to really take a step back and see the big picture of what is really going on in the world from the perspective of God's heavenly throne room. Uh, The bit that we've uh, just read comes in the the middle of a section where seven trumpets are are blown. Um, Chapters eight and nine, uh, we get the first six of those trumpets. Uh, announcing God's curses on a fallen world. Uh, they're chapters which describe the, the suffering and evil that we see in our present age. Uh, that is the world ever since Genesis 3. A broken world that's been given over to evil spiritual forces 
and natural disasters. Uh, then at the end of chapter 11, just after the passage we've, we've had read, um, a seventh trumpet is blown. And uh, that final trumpet announces the coming of God's kingdom uh, and the reward of God's people uh, and judgments on all those who've caused destruction on earth. Uh, but between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, um, there is, there's this kind of long interlude in chapters uh, 10 and 11 where John's vision zooms in and it specifically focuses on Christians. Uh, Christians in the midst of this period of brokenness and tribulation. And these are chapters which reveal what life is going to look like for us uh, as we wait for God's kingdom to come. So John 11, verse 1, John's told to go and measure the temple and its worshippers. It's a picture of God's people, the church. And at notice verse 2, uh, he's told there are people in the midst of a hostile world and they're surrounded by Gentiles. Uh, stands for those who are not God's people, uh, Gentiles who are attacking them. And then into the midst of that hostile world, verse 3, God sends two witnesses. And it's pretty clear from the context of, Re of Revelation that these two witnesses represent ordinary Christians in every place and time throughout history. I notice they're described as lampstands in the fourth verse. Uh, lampstands is an image that was used in chapter 1 to refer to the church. Uh, they're also described as, as witnesses. And uh, witnesses are those who give testimony as a description that John uses throughout the book of Revelation, basically as a synonym for Christians. Um, if you're in any doubt about that, for your notes, Revelation 17 verse 6, I think makes that identification very clear. Um, all of which means, if it wasn't obvious the first time we read through this, um, this passage is directly describing how God sees you and me and how he sees the world around us. So before I go any further, uh, I want to say getting that perspective right, uh, seeing things how God sees them, um, again, that is going to make us way more effective evangelists at work than thinking about any number of practical tips. Again, far more important than techniques uh, is the worldview that we have when we walk into the office tomorrow morning. Uh, it's said that the great American evangelist uh, D.L. Moody, um, on a, a visit to London once, was uh, visited by a, a group of clergymen who uh, wanted to know how such a poorly educated man had been so effective in winning people for Christ. Uh, apparently, Moody took the three of them over to a window and just asked them to describe what they saw. And so one by one, each of them uh, talked about the, the park that was below and the people wandering around in it. Uh, and then one of them said, Mr. Moody, what do you see? Uh, and Moody is said to have replied, uh, with tears running down his cheeks, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the saviour. When we go into work on Monday morning, and look at our colleagues, and what do we see? 
And do we see people who are fighting against God and desperately in need of Christ? Oh, when we look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning, uh, what do we see? Um, do we see what God sees? Uh, what does God see? Verse 3, God sees a missionary. God sees a missionary. Uh, there are, of course, a number of confusing details um, in this passage, but I think there are three really clear things that stand out about being missionaries in the workplace. Um, number one, you have God's authority. You have God's authority. A few weeks ago, I came across uh, an article on the website, The Huffington Post, uh, which had the title, 10 Reasons It's Wrong to Evangelize in the Workplace. Um, pretty clearly being written by someone uh, with a, a bad experience of being witnessed to by a colleague. Um, and I think essentially his 10 reasons you could boil down to just two. Uh, number one, he was saying it's, it's unloving, which I, I expect most of us here would, would easily bat away, wouldn't we, and say, no, of course, we understand the gospel. We, we know that telling it to people is the most loving thing we can do. Um, but I wonder if his second complaint is one that might resonate with us a little bit more, uh, which was this, uh, you've got no right to. That's not why you're at work. Uh, might cause complaints, might cause trouble for your employer. Essentially, it's going to make you a bad employee. Um, I wonder if that is the kind of argument that might bother us just a little bit more and uh, make us a bit cautious about what we say and, and when we say it. Uh, and, of course, um, as I imagine Phil would have said yesterday, um, if we are just kind of neglecting our, our work because we're spending all our time speaking about Jesus in the office... Uh, well then, yeah, we, we probably would be dishonouring our employer, um, and that would be a bad witness. Um, my guess, though, is that is probably not the danger that most of us face. Um, Jesus says to us in this passage, you have every right to speak about me anywhere and everywhere. You may have seen that quote on the first page of the booklet, the 19th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said very famously, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And that includes our workplace. And fundamentally, your workplace doesn't belong to your company, it belongs to King Jesus. And verse 3, he gives us a royal charter. Uh, he appoints, uh, perhaps better translated, he gives authority to witnesses, to you and me, to speak about him in every place. Which means when you think about it, there is no door in the universe on which someone can hang a sign that says no gospel conversations beyond this point. Yeah, sure, let's be wise about how we do it. But our workplace really isn't a no-go area for the gospel. Secondly, it's clear that you will suffer, but only for a short while. Uh, it's not an unusual thing for the Christian message to go down badly with people. 
um, it is often said, isn't it, that we're living in a time in the UK at the moment where people seem to be particularly hardened to the gospel. And uh, no doubt there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, but it's worth us remembering um, the gospel message has, <laughs> has never been popular. Uh, verses 7 to 10 of our passage describe the murder and the public shaming of Christians by a world who hated their message. I thought this was supposed to be encouraging, I hear you say. Um, well, it's, it is, I think, for two reasons. Um, firstly, because if you knew nothing about the Christian life, um, these verses might be discouraging. Um, but remember, this vision was given by John, or through John rather, um, to persecuted churches. Um, they would not have been surprised to hear that this is what life is like for Christians in the world now. And if we've been Christians for any length of time, uh, and spoken openly about our faith in Christ, um, we almost certainly will have suffered for it in some way. And many Christians around the world today are literally dying for their faith. Uh, if you're a Christian in North Korea or, or Sudan or somewhere like that, and reading these verses, these verses feel very, very real. Uh, which often makes me, by the way, wonder what is holding me back. Uh, I mean, what is the worst that is going to happen to us in the UK? A bit of stick from our colleagues, um, slap on the wrist from HR. Um, losing our job would probably be the worst case scenario, uh, and that's pretty unlikely, isn't it? Uh, we're, we're very unlikely to lose our lives, at least for now. Uh, but the ultimate encouragement here is that God knows. God knows what this time of witness is going to be like for us. And he has limited it. Uh, that's the point of the time references in verses 2 and 3. You see the, uh, the 42 months there at the end of verse 2 that the Gentiles trample on the holy city for. And at the 1,260 days in verse 3 that the witnesses are to prophesy for. Um, the accountants in the room might have already worked this out. They are both the same length of time. Um, three and a half years. Um, and that's a significant number in biblical prophecy. Three and a half stands for a limited time. Uh, you're probably more, more familiar with the number seven. Uh, number seven, the, the number of kind of fullness of time, complete time. And um, three and a half, half of seven. Uh, the point is it's not complete time. Uh, shorter time, limited time. At the age of persecution, this age of witness, it will come to an end soon. Uh, in the scope of eternity, it, it really isn't that long at all. And then comes verses 11 to 12. But after three, the three and a half days, no, another short time, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. A short time of witness, followed by resurrection life and eternal rewards. Uh, which means we can be okay with the possibility of persecution now. Uh, my mother, I, I think, is the best personal evangelist that I've uh, ever met. She, uh, she works as a GP. 
Um, over the years, she's uh, she'd say she's seen about eighty to ninety people she's met come to Christianity, Christianity Explorer courses um, with her. About half of them have been her patients. And uh, I remember visiting home a year or so ago and just asking her how her, her week had been. Um, she said to me, uh, actually, I, I had two conversations with patients this week, um, which I could very easily be struck off for if they complained about it. Uh, but if you were to ask her, aren't you worried about that? Uh, she would say, well, yeah, but we've got to obey God rather than man. And you may wonder, I mean, how on earth has she been able to keep doing her job so long if that's the way she goes about it? Uh, well, the answer's in verse 7. Verse 7. Now, when they finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. But notice, only when they finished. Only when they finished. Uh, Mum's been able to keep her job and keep speaking about the gospel because the Lord hasn't finished with her there yet. And you and I will only be stopped from speaking about Christ when we finish the testimony that God has planned for us. And until then, until then, third really clear point from this vision. You speak with God's power. Uh, verses 5 and 6 are, are dramatic verses, aren't they? Um, verse 5 <laughs> speaks of power, uh, fire rather, flowing from our mouths. There's words that come with power. Um, verse 6 promises us power to shut up the heavens, uh, power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with plagues. There's uh, allusions in that verse to Elijah and Moses, uh, examples of two faithful witnesses in times when God's people were persecuted uh, and of how God's power was with them. Of course, it's, it's not literal language here for us. It often, often won't feel or look that dramatically visible to us. But it still speaks of a true reality. That God is powerfully behind his message going out. A few years ago, uh, someone working in the city told me the story of how uh, he'd once been called in to see his boss. He was very upset because uh, he'd gone around and put cow service flyers on his colleague's desk. Um, apparently, his boss had heard about the church that uh, he went to. Um, and he was told it was really offensive that, they'd, uh, that he'd gone around and invited people to such an awful place. Um, and that he needed to go around and individually apologise to each of his colleagues um, for suggesting that they go to, to somewhere so terrible. Um, of course, he said, I felt pretty beaten up by that uh, at first. Um, but you know what? It, it turned into the most wonderful gospel opportunity. Um, because he said, as I went round, I mean, obviously people weren't at all offended. Um, in fact, they were suddenly intrigued by this supposedly offensive event that I'd been inviting them to. <laughs> um, and he said, colleagues actually started to, to kind of take these flyers out of the bins that they just immediately thrown them into and, and actually read them. Um, so he said, I, I ended up having two hours of effectively work-enforced evangelistic conversations. <laughs> um, God is powerfully behind his message. 
and he speaks powerfully through very, very ordinary people like you and me. I don't know about you, um, I reckon the reason above all others uh, why I tend to be so hesitant in evangelism is that too often I, I just think far too highly of my own role in it. I think I have to have exactly the right thing to say all of the time. Um, but just think about it. Um, how many people do you know who came to faith because they kind of they met this brilliant debater of a Christian who um, perfectly deconstructed their worldview and uh, demolished every objection they had and knew how to answer every question? Um, I've not met many people like that. I've met many more people who just had a Christian friend who cared about them and uh, asked them questions about what they believed and took an interest in them and shared their own hope in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Mark O'Donoghue, some of you will know, um, now the vicar at Christchurch Kensington, for many years used to run the city workers team at, at St. Helens Bishopsgate. Um, he says it, in his experience, the most effective evangelists he saw in the city uh, were often not the super confident, kind of gregarious extroverts types. Um, they were just people who cared about their colleagues. Now, the pattern of gospel ministry, when you look at it through, throughout history, is that God uses weak people with his extraordinary power so that he gets the glory. It's amazing um, sometimes, actually, how easily certain people seem to come to faith. I, one of the, the best examples of that with my mother, just a, about 18 months ago, one of her, her patients came in, a very uh, impressive, very intelligent young lawyer. Uh, she came in clearly very, very lonely. And uh, she said to my mum at one point in the conversation, do you, know, do you maybe know of any religious groups around here I could join? Uh, mum said, yeah, I do. I <laughs> uh, don't think she quite said it like that, it's my paraphrase. Um, she said, yeah, come to church with me on Sunday. Um, and so she did, and uh, she kept coming, and uh, within about six months had become a Christian. Uh, it just seemed very easy. And uh, Mum uses that story actually as an example of one of her favourite quotes. Um, it's from a book by the, the late Australian evangelist John Chapman, uh, who in typical Aussie style said, um, if the fruit is ripe, any old cow can bump into the tree and it'll fall off. <laughs> um, it doesn't take a brilliant apologist. Um, it takes ordinary Christians plus the extraordinary power of God. So getting our thinking right, see, seeing ourselves the way that God sees us, with his authority and with his power, and that is going to make way more difference as we go into work than any practical advice. Um, that said, I'm going to finish with a few bits of practical wisdom that might be helpful. Um, so most of these are in your booklets, and most of these don't come from, from me, um, having it only ever in my life worked on church staff teams. You'll be relieved to hear I don't have much experience of evangelism amongst my colleagues. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've spoken to a number of people who, who do have a lot of experience uh, in that. Um, this list is largely their top 10 bits of, of advice. 
Um, the first two, I think, are pretty self-explanatory, uh, aren't they? Um, pray. Um, pray for opportunities. Um, pray for your colleagues. Uh, think them through. Pray for them by name. Uh, secondly, get to know them. We're going to need to make a, an effort relationally. Uh, we're thinking maybe, there are a couple of ideas down there. We're, we're thinking about how we might be the ones to take the initiative with that. And could we be the one to suggest the pub trip after work? Um, third, and I've heard um, lots and lots of people say this one, um, that if, if you don't make it known that you're a Christian early on in your workplace, um, it gets harder and harder uh, the longer things go on. Um, so try and find a way, make it known early amongst your colleagues um, that you're a Christian. Um, fourth, uh, it's related to the fourth point. Um, hopefully being a Christian is something we're excited and passionate about. Uh, but it's easy, I think, isn't it, to feel like we kind of need to keep that bottled up inside at work because you know, people think it's a bit weird to be enthusiastic about religion these days. Um, actually, when you think about it, um, not being enthusiastic um, really doesn't help our witness, does it? Uh, it's not going to help our witness if it looks like our, our faith is something we, we're just pretty indifferent about. Um, if our colleagues actually see the joy and hope and confidence that following Christ brings us, um, hopefully it would make them jealous um, in a good way. Uh, fifthly, uh, again, we thought about this uh, a bit in the previous talk. Um, loving the unlovely uh, ought to be something we do as, as Christians, and it can be a really great witness doing that. Uh, I had a course made at, at uni. I'll call him Rob. Um, I, I think he was the most obnoxious person I've ever met. Um, he was loud. Um, he was arrogant. Um, he was totally self uh, uh, totally unself-aware. Um, and he was in my college, in my college, um, which meant I saw quite a bit of him. And um, people used to talk about him behind his back all the time about how annoying he was. Um, one day after a lecture, I was, as we were walking home, um, I said to him rather nervously, um, "Look, Rob, you know this, uh, you know this Christianity explored thing that our mate Johnny and I went to last term. Um, there's another one starting tonight. Just kind of wonder whether you might like to come along." Um, now, given the course started that, this was the, at the end of the day's work, given the course started that evening in about two hours' time, um, pretty hopeless evangelistic planning on my part, um, I fully expected him to say, um, no thanks, I'm busy, I've got other things to do. Um, much to my surprise, he said yes. And he came, and he kept coming, um, and he became a Christian. And uh, today he is a very, very different person. Um, but as I thought back to that day when I invited him, I think, why did he come that evening? I reckon a big part of it was nobody else invited him to things. And I think he was probably delighted that, that somebody showed some interest in him and invited him to spend time with them. And just we're thinking maybe about whether there might be real gospel opportunities amongst some of the more difficult people that we work with. Uh, sixth, uh, again, I think this is uh, fairly self-explanatory. Um, let's not be known as lazy workers. That would be a poor witness. Um, seventh, use lunchtime talks. Uh, now, if you don't know about uh, lunchtime talks, um, throughout the city, there's this uh, 
kind of network of Christian talks put on at a lunchtime uh, with the express purposes of one, um, encouraging Christians to live for Christ throughout the week, um, but two, uh, being somewhere that you can easily bring a non-Christian colleague along to uh, where they'll be able to hear a talk from the Bible for kind of 10, 15 minutes or so. Uh, I used to work with one of them in London Bridge. Um, Christchurch, you may know, what runs one in Mayfair. Um, they provide lunch. They run for about half an hour. And um, they are very keep- careful at keeping to time um, so that you're not uh, late for work. They are a really, really excellent resource. Um, you'll see the, the website address, I think, in the, yeah, in the booklet. Um, well, well worth checking out whether there is one of those uh, near you. If you're, you're working in the City of London, almost certainly there'll be one within walking distance. Um, that is a, a highly, highly commended resource. Um, does anyone here go to a long-term lunchtime talk? Yeah, a few. few. St- right, hands, hands higher, hands higher. <laughs> These are the people to talk to about lunchtime talks. Great. Uh, eighth, on the topic of Christian meeting uh, of mission, uh, meeting with other Christians, um, why not do that at work? Um, why not join or, or start a prayer group uh, at work? Um, what might you be able to start up? Um, just just getting together, actually, I think, w- will be an encouragement. Just getting together with other Christians in the workplace is going to encourage you that you're not alone um, and will remind you of who you're living for. Uh, ninth, be prepared. Uh, maybe have some resources with you in your bag, a latest flyer for an evangelistic event at church, a gospel, things like that. Uh, and then finally, 10th, be bold. Be bold. Uh, you might be surprised how many people would be willing to read a bit of a gospel with you uh, if you just asked. And um, probably the worst they would do is say no. Uh, and if they were feeling very British, they'd probably say, no, thank you. <laughs> Um, and there have been some really, really good resources produced in the last uh, few years, which, which make it really easy to read a gospel one-to-one um, with a non-Christian. Many of you would be familiar uh, already with uh, Uncover, and that resource, great little uh, set of evangelistic Bible studies um, that you can do. Um, there's also the Word one-to-one, uh, and uh, the beauty of the Word one-to-one is that there are no questions. So um, it just kind of takes you through a passage in John's gospel, you read it through, and there are kind of some notes helpful explanatory notes alongside the text. So instead of um, going kind of back and forth, um, you just read through it together. And um, that's particularly good if you've got someone who you think it would be kind of awkward, they they wouldn't be very comfortable uh, asking and answering questions. And so uncover uh, word one-to-one. Again, really worth getting familiar with those resources. Um, I think there are copies available to check out at church. Is that right? Yes. Liz is nodding. Yeah, so there there are resources on the bookstall, somewhat yes. potentially, potentially, potentially on the bookstall. Church, <laughs> um, worth just going and flicking through and thinking, you know, flick through, uncover, flick through word one to one, think what might work um, for you. Ten tips there. Uh, above all of those, remember you're not alone. Uh, you are there with God's authority. You speak with God's extraordinary power. Let me pray for us. Praise and thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus, for his goodness to us, for his sacrifice for us, for how he reveals your glory. And Father, we pray that the more we know him, the more we 
understand what he's done for us, the more we would want to see him glorified. Uh, so, Father, we pray that you would send us out from here into our workplaces with a passion for your name, uh, as those who cannot help but speak of the things we've heard. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, be with us. Uh, give us supernatural boldness to speak. Give us courage. Father, help us uh, have wisdom to know when to speak and what to say. Uh, we praise you that we don't do it alone. Uh, Father, pray you'd help us to uh, take those opportunities when they come to speak of Christ and ask that we might see fruit in our workplaces of those uh, one for you uh, who bow to the Lord Jesus and proclaim him as Lord and King. For Jesus' sake. Amen.